This is the Ritz and Hewers podcast. This evening we're going to talk about wills. We know that the theory, well, we already know the theory about why wills are important. We may go over that again just to remind you. And yet a number of us, and I'm so guilty of this, still leave doing a will until later in life. I still don't think I'm at that point of later in life. Uh, Sometimes it's too late for people. We know that's happened as well. So we're joined tonight by Laura Vickers, who's with Nest Legal. They're an online law firm. They're trying to fight against our natural tendency to put it off by making it easier to do a will. Should be along in about half an hour. And first up, we're looking at violence in hospitals. And you'll remember that last week a surgeon was assaulted at Box Hill Hospital and asking how common is violence in hospitals, what is being done to address that problem and is enough being done. And with me, as per usual, it seems these days is Melbourne lawyer Katie Miller. Hi, Katie. Nice to see you. Lovely to see you, Lindy. And sitting next to you is a man just returned from Canada, as my brother always called it, psychiatrist Dr. Steve Ellen from the Peter Mac. Hi, Steve. Is there an equivalent, Canadian equivalent to g'day? Because I feel I should use it. So I'm just, I'm just going to go with g'day. In fact, I, while I was over there, it's, I'm so used to saying g'day. People would say, oh, hello, and introduce themselves. And I'd say, oh, g'day. How are you? And it's it's a giveaway. It is totally. I need giveaway. a Canadian equivalent. Do you? Be- I become much more Australian when I'm overseas. I I hardly ever say good day anywhere except when I'm away from Australia. It's, see, it's see a, I'm big, just a full on. Um, we're really, man. I'm an Aussie yobbo um, <laughs> every day. <laughs> every single work. day. Looking forward to talking about wills tonight, and I have a feeling that tomorrow I'll be making one. Um, I don't know if Pete realizes this is about to happen. That's my husband, by the way. In case you're wondering, who the hell is that man? Last Tuesday night, though, something terrible happened. A surgeon. Dr. Prinzwald Stegman was punched and critically injured, apparently leaving work at Box Hill Hospital. We're aware that a 22-year-old has been charged. In addition to that, though, people may have forgotten that in April, a nurse was held at knife point by a 60-year-old patient. Last October, a patient drove his four-wheel drive through the doors at Sunshine Hospital, apparently angry at the waiting time. And then back in 2014, neurosurgeon Dr. Michael Wong was stabbed 14 times as he walked into work at the Western Hospital, lost part of a lung, almost lost the ability to work. Luckily and thankfully, after months of hand rehab, he could return to work. Now, these are just four high-profile cases out of what I believe to be thousands that occur each year. Tonight we're looking at that on Roots and Cures. And Steve, how common is this now? You work in a hospital. Are you worried? Well, you know, I've been working in hospitals for 30 odd years now. And violence is, it, 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 in fact, probably the biggest problem is it's just, it's part of the daily work to the point where um, we sort of take it for granted. But there's been so many high profile cases building up over the last 10 years and a series of reports that everyone's really starting to take a step back and say, Come on, enough's enough. We really need a systematized response. And, um, but what, and, you know, so I guess what I'm saying is the actual numbers, no one really knows. Like, I know of a number of doctors who have been killed over the years. Wow. One I knew, one I knew was killed by a patient. And, uh, I've read of many others. But I've never, like, when I tried to find a report of how many, um, nurses or doctors had been killed, I couldn't find a report. Why? Um, I'm well, not, not, I'm not questioning your abilities to, to research something, but, but, <laughs> Are they just not being reported and why are they the not being reported? The data is really badly reported. In fact, in fact, we'll get onto this, what should be done about it later, because nearly every report 
that comes out says we've got to get our act together with respect to data. Like, for example, the best report I found in the last few years was one done by Fairfax. They had a look at a whole lot of um, stuff and wrote a, a big report last year um, in you know one of their newspapers um, looking at the 2015-16 data that, and they looked at about 8,600 cases of um, occupational violence in hospitals, of which about 1,100 resulted in in staff injury, which is three a day, obviously. Um, but no one actually, no one knows the actual numbers. Every hospital has a different reporting system. The Department of Health um, is keeps some figures, but they're not consistent on what they keep and what they require from hospital. And every state's different. So it's, in terms of figuring out actual trends, it's fair to say it's a mess. What about... WorkSafe and WorkCover, I mean, surely they're keeping the, the data. I mean, if this was a, a building site, we'd know about it. So yep. are they keeping figures about it? Yeah, so they keep figures. But of course, the figures that they keep are only the figures that are reported to them. And so what happens in hospitals is a lot of people take a lot of the violence for granted. Now, what I mean by that is when you think of the violence, of course, most people think of things like the assaults. But a lot of the um, violence is, say, from confused patients or, say, patients with dementia. And uh, depending on the level of the injury, say you get punched in the face and a black eye, you're not likely to report that anywhere. You're not going to report it to the police. Is that just accepted? It's sort of accepted as part and parcel. Although in recent years, people have been keener and keener, depending on your hospital and your hospital system, but as I say, it varies from place to place, um, they encourage you to report it on these various um, risk registers we have, like the one that most people in the hospital system will know as Risk Man, where you... But then, for example, doctors are notorious for never filling out Risk Man reports, for example. Nurses do, but doctors don't. Um, they can never remember how to log on and what their password is, and it takes too long, and there's another five patients waiting, so, that, so they just don't do it. And so the data is really hard to get your fingers on. That's one of the biggest complaints. I was thinking about this from a legal perspective today, which is fraught, Katie, as we know, because we never want me wading into this area. So thankfully you're here to fix it. I was thinking about this from a legal perspective. I understand from an occupational health and safety perspective that you want the data because you want to be able to say, well, you know, how did that person get past that door or that was just a family member. Perhaps mm -hmm. we could have addressed this in a different way and we just escalated the problem because it's an emotional environment. It's highly emotional. Yes. So pe people are often in pain or they're, they're witnessing somebody else in discomfort that they love. The list goes on. So – from an occupational health and safety perspective, I understand that you want to protect and take care of your staff. But from a legal perspective, as in these people, some of them, well, in this situation with the, the, the surgeon from last week, a man has been charged with this. And I, I don't know what the charges mean. I don't know if it's attempted murder. I don't know if it's what. I don't know. However, in such an environment as this, how does would the would it legally be such a difficult case to prosecute because it's sort of part and parcel of of what goes on on a regular basis? Do you know what I'm trying to say? I'm not yeah, articulating yeah. this terribly it, it, well. It's sort of like what we talk about when you know one of the great sort of um, law classroom problems um, is: do would footy players be guilty of assault? You know, so it's that idea that when you're in a certain environment, are the rules the same? And the fact is, is that the law is the law is the law. Like the law is the same in a hospital as it would be out on the street. Um, I think that where you might run into some challenges and where the police may be as part of their investigation weighing up, do we actually 
go through and charge someone, um, is that there will be a number of elements that need to be established. And one of those is the mental element. One of those is the intention. Was there an intention to cause harm? And if you have people who are in a vulnerable state and there may be a question about their capacity to have rational thought, um, and this is where it's particularly relevant in, in um, you know, sort of when you're talking about elderly people who may be suffering from dementia or other sort of cognitive impairment, you know, there might be a real question about whether you can prove that they actually intended to cause harm. So I think that it, it's there's elements that might be harder to prove in a health context, but that doesn't mean that the law doesn't apply it's it's more about what do we do once these incidents happen and what's the appropriate response. Yes, and, and I guess going back to the footballers, you know, just how much do the victims of of these events want to, for want of a better word, prosecute or, or sort of want to go through that process? And what you were saying, Steve, uh, you know, a lot of people within the medical fraternity are unwilling to even put it on the record, let alone yeah. take it any further than that. And even and what used to happen, I think this is better now, but what used to happen a lot in the earlier days of my career, you know, really as recently as 10 years though, if we rang the police and told them, the police were so reluctant to do anything about it because they know that nine times out of 10, the clinician a couple of days later will say, I don't want to go through the hassle of going to court yeah. and, they, and they won't give evidence. Um, interviewing the, um, the perpetrator, who is often a confused person or someone who's in, say, a psych ward or got all sorts of other problems, takes ages. There'll be all sorts of legal issues around that. Um, hardly anything ever came of it. So the police were never that keen to do much. And um, there was just largely a sense of, well, the people are sick. What can we do about it? You know, they're either intoxicated, they're maybe on drugs, they may be suffering from some sort of impairment, they might be delirious or confused or suffering from dementia. Really, and so there was just this broad sense of what is the point? And it's a heck of a lot of work. You know, you know, if you make a report, you're going you know, to have to go and give evidence at some stage, which is traumatic in and of itself. So most people would just put up with it. But having... And having said that, you know, it was often a cause of a lot of frustration because over the years I could name, you know, dozens of cases of people with broken arms, broken noses, black eyes, all that sort of stuff in the hospital system. And uh, it, it was always this great sense of frustration. What do we do? It's in the too hard basket. And this is where I think we need to remember that there are more laws than just the criminal law. And I think that one of the, the questions that kind of needs to be asked in this context is, what are we actually going to achieve by charging someone? I mean, if they were drug affected, if they are sort of experiencing difficulty in their life, what does charging them actually achieve? But I think that that doesn't necessarily mean that we stop and say, well, doctors and nurses just have to deal with this. Mm -hmm. There are other laws. There are workplace safety laws. And you can do things that stop short of charging people but still protect yes. the, the, the workers who are involved. Yeah, hopefully. I was just thinking I would, I would hate being in a profession. It would be really confronting to me to be in a profession to not only think that that could happen to you and more likely than not, at least once during your career, that there would be a threat of violence or perhaps someone acting out, even if it's just a slap across the face from somebody who is, you know, distressed at a, at a particular time. But not only that, but that it was kind of accepted that that was part and parcel of what it was. I mean, I'm, mm. so I'm in such a soft industry. This is so soft. I've got a whole desk in front of me. You, neither of you can get across to me. The, Although in, I lose my temper sometimes. You do. Okay, I'm not going to joke about it. But no, it's quite right. I mean, I was, I think I mentioned, I can't remember if I mentioned this on air, but I had a case oh, a little while back now, but in the, I don't want to say exactly when for details, but I had someone, you know, who 
who made it very public that they were that you know they'd put it out that they wanted me killed. Now they were unwell at the time, and uh, about a week or two later they got better and they rang and apologised and everything settled down. But it is sort of just part and parcel. Um, and of course, the other point I wanted to make is the law's just one slither of what everyone wants done. There's all the preventative stuff that everyone wants done. Cause like we, what? Well, we know what the hotspots are. Uh, you know, we know that the biggest hotspot, say, is the emergency department. And we know the commonest people who get uh, assaulted there are the nurses, the frontline staff. The doctors are always second line. The nurses are the frontline staff. We know it's especially in places where there's long waiting times, um, cramped, overcrowded um, uh, waiting rooms. We know the worst times are weekends when people are affected by alcohol and drugs. Then we know all the other stuff too. We know mental health services have a higher rate. The aged services have a high rates. Um, paramedics, all the people who call out, about 10% of para- paramedics get some sort of assault occurring to them that you know requires things like time off work. Um, and we know um, also it's not just patients. It's which I think you made that po- you comment comment on that before, Lindy. It's um, often family members or the general public who are frustrated by what's happening. So we know all of that sort of stuff, um, and we know things like long waiting times and all that add to it. Um, so there's there's a heap that can be done without actually resorting to police and the law. Well, what's give me one example of what can be done? Well, you know, there's so you know. One of the frustrations around this is there's just been report after report after report for the last 10 years. The audit, I've got the Auditor General's report in front of me. You know, this one was quite damning last time um, on the sort of they, every two years they do occupational violence against healthcare workers. The AMA have put out reports and the Nurses Federation. So I'll give you some example. The Nurses Federation, they've got a 10-point pr- plan, improved security. Now, that's normally about having visible security guards. No one wants them armed. No one really wants metal detectives, detectors either, but they want security guards to be visible the whole time. They want to identify the high-risk areas and have programs and education and support in place and change their environment, fix up the waiting times, make the waiting rooms more comfortable, big signs saying how long you're going to wait, all that sort of stuff. They want to uh, include families in um, plans so that the families know what's going on and all that sort of stuff. Um, They want great reporting systems. AMA, Auditor General, everyone says reporting systems are a mess and we've got to do a lot better around those things. Reporting systems on incidents. Yeah, incidents so that incidents are automatically reported. They're automatically going to the Department of Health and Human Services and every year there's a report on what's going on with some serious... um, uh, responses and and uh, and it's so that it becomes actually part of the culture of hospitals that we deal with this on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis, the whole time through, uh, and public education programs. Uh, one of the responses after um, one of the big um, incidents last year, I forget which one what it was, but the government put out about, I think they um, it was uh, they gave it a specific name, it escapes me right now, but it was a $20 million over five years plan. And they, um, they uh, oh, it was called the Health Service, I've got it right here in front of me, the Health Service Violence Prevention Fund, $20 million over four years, started in late 2015. And there's included things like, significant safety and security upgrades, CCTV cameras in all the hotspots. So has this um, been implemented? It's partly. That's um, about one and a half years in. I just read the current um, – I was just having a look today on their website for their you know, their current push of what they're giving out money for. So, But if you think about it, that's still – we're talking 4 or $5 million a year in a system that's costing yeah. – I don't know. If you added it up, it must be a couple of yeah, billion a year. it's a tiny, tiny um, percentage. When I spoke to a couple of the media um, representatives of you know some of the big organisations today – to be honest, they thought that it was 
Way drop, too little. A drop. Way too little. In the ocean. But they're doing stuff like working with Ambulance Victoria about body cameras worn by their paramedics, and they're doing a big publicity, uh, public campaign to try and get people to recognise that it's just not on. And there's a, whole, a few other things that they're trying to do. It's interesting, though, what you say about, you know, the culture and the need for data and how much this is just accepted. Um, And I actually think that there's something in the fact that it's a helping profession. And so I think that people feel as though, you know, all of the workers that are involved are there for them. um, And equally, they don't necessarily see... Um, the people that they're harming. like they're, they're not conscious of what they're actually doing in a way. And I think that something like a public campaign, just making it very clear that these are workplaces, you can't just take out your frustration. You would never dream of doing it at the supermarket. Yes. So why do we think it's okay in hospitals? Yeah, it's interesting. Mm. Does it happen in the legal profession? Is there such a we do have we, we do have some problems um, in the legal profession. I think that where it's a bit different from uh, the health profession and healthcare um, is, first of all, the points at time in which we are engaging with people. So we are probably going to be less likely to run into people who are suffering the immediate effects of drugs at court than we are compared to, say, in a hospital setting. Uh, I think the other big difference um, is security. I think a lot more of our facilities are being built um, with these sorts of incidents in mind. Um, Certainly not all of the facilities. I know that there are certainly some problems with regional courts where you're lucky to get an interview room, let alone a secure interview room. Um, But I do think that there has been um, a lot of soul searching, I think, in the legal sector in the last sort of decade and recognising that these are workplaces. We do have occupational health and safety obligations and we do need to make them safe for the workers in them. You know, I'm nodding. No, I can see my face. You know, face. it's funny. Um, you know, a lot of the emergency departments are fantastic now, but when I was preparing this today, when I was up on the wards of my hospital, I asked a number of people, you know, what's your thoughts? How much do you see? You know, is there any places you wouldn't work? And nearly everyone, you know, I, my hospital that I'm at currently doesn't have an emergency department, but nearly everyone said, oh, I wouldn't work in emergency. It's too risky. Now, having said that, of course, I worked at the Alfred for 16 years, you know, one of the biggest emergency departments in Melbourne, and I always felt very safe there. But then I didn't go there on a Saturday night, and I'd often come to work Monday, and people would say it was chaos. You know, I think, you know, the people working in these places are very, you know, they're quite brave. You know, nearly everyone I asked today said they wouldn't work in an emergency department. They just thought it was too, too risky, you know, out of hours, which is a pretty sad state of affairs. You know, I I, I really think... um, But that's part of the cultural problem. The people who do work in those very high stress environments just learn to think that this is normal. And so they don't report the incidents. They don't have that reaction of this is unsafe. Um, And so in some ways, by not reporting it, by not by not making the fuss, um, it's difficult to get the attention to actually change it. And yet everybody sort of it's it's accepted within the industry mm. that you just don't want to go there. Is it worse than it was, say, 10, 15 years ago? Yeah, it appears to be. There was a number of studies that said rates have doubled over the last 10, 20 years. Rates of violence. Rates of violence in hospitals. I saw a couple of studies that looked at actual incident rates. And, you know, one study I saw was 5,000 people working in healthcare settings and 70% said they'd experienced some sort of violence. So it's got, you know, now that's, you know, I I think that was a... You know, not necessarily completely applicable to all populations and all healthcare settings, but it has got out of hand. And part of it is the frustration that no one knows quite what to do. We all agree we need better data, better security, more cameras and that sort of stuff. But it's not like anyone's got a solution that says this is how it's going to fix. If you look at the Auditor General's report, the AMA's report, the Nursing and Midwifery Association report, various others, they are all got overlap. 
but they're all slightly different. And so it's time for, um, I think, you know, some strong leadership in this area, the data to inform policy and then the policy to be seriously rolled out with proper money behind it. And cultural change. Yes. You know, that's that's, yes. that, that's probably the hardest one of them all. But, but with this, with the other things in place, you can, you can start to generate some cultural change as well. Uh, a difficult subject. Thank you very much to the pair of you for contributing to that. You're listening to Ritz and Cures. Katie Miller is a Melbourne lawyer and Dr Steve Ellen is a psychiatrist at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre. And our special guest tonight is Laura Vickers, who's the founder and principal of Nest Legal. It's an online after-hours law firm for people who, you know, don't have time to visit a lawyer during the day. She provides services in conveyancing, dispute strategy, and our topic tonight, which is wills. And in fact, her approach of being available when her clients are won her the 2014 LexisNexis Legal Innovation Index. I don't know what that is, but it sounds pretty good. She regularly blogs and tweets and speaks about how lawyers can be more innovative and encourages new legal startups in their journey through a Facebook community known as New Law Chambers. This woman is taking the fustiness out of the world of law. No offence, Katie. Hi, Laura. Nice to meet you. Hi, Lindy. Nice to have you come in. So uh, tell me, what's the LexisNexis Legal Innovation Index? Could anybody explain that? Uh, it, well, it's, it's a new award. I think it's in its fourth year now. And just because finally the legal profession's catching up and doing some exciting things with innovation and there was just no way to recognise uh, lawyers that were doing that previously. So they started this index and it's a great little community um, of Australian lawyers that are doing fun things and... Most of us know each other because we're all helping each other. We're not in competition. Uh, and that's what we do through the Facebook group, and that's why the index was created. That's great. Well, congratulations on actually thinking, you know what, I'm going to make it a bit easier for the clients. Who would have thought? Mm-hmm. How does an online law firm work? Do you have chat rooms or something, and how does it work? Well, my philosophy was always to make it as easy for the clients as possible, and that's using the technology that they're already using. So we use Skype, FaceTime, email, texts, uh, and we just engage with the medium that people want to talk to us. And why did you decide that wills would be one of the things that you would cover on that site? Uh, Because I was really designing a law firm around people like me. Um, I have a one-year-old and a four-year-old and no spare time at all. uh, And we didn't have a will. We struggled to get our tax returns lodged just because it was so difficult uh, to make an appointment to see a professional either on my own but particularly with my partner as well. Um, So I was thinking about that from the perspective of my clients and I thought if I'm having such a headache trying to see an accountant, they're probably having equal headaches trying to see a lawyer. Yeah, they are. Yeah, they are. So, I mean, we sort of introduce this topic by saying that everybody knows why we need to have a will. But, you know, just for some of us who might have forgotten, I mean, why is it important to have a will? Why can't we just let the state look after us? There is a formula of intestacy that will determine who gets your stuff if you die without a will. But basically, it's about making it easier for the people who are left behind. Um, We're all going to die. That's one of the definites. And the default formula may be appropriate for your situation, and that's really only just dealing with your stuff. Um, it's not dealing with all the other things that your uh, loved ones are going to have to deal with. So what do you want for your funeral? What do you want done with your body? What do you want done? Who do you want your children living with? Who do you want looking after your children's inheritance until they're adults? Uh, who's going to manage your digital assets? If someone's trolling your Facebook and freaking out your mother, who's going to find a way to get that shut down? 
Uh, so it's not just about who's going to get the things that I own. It's everything else that someone you love is going to have to deal with. You said that there's a formula or if if we don't have a will that there's sort of a formula. Was it just say formula? Or it like is that? a formula. It, it's a it's a... It's a formula about, um, you know, first it goes to your spouse and, and then depending on whether you have kids, a portion will go to the kids and then it gets more remote dealing with each next of kin. Um, and that might be appropriate, but it might not. Um, if you and your partner own property as joint tenants and you both die at the same time without wills, then your equity in that property will go to the next of kin of the younger of the two of you. Of the younger of the two of if you. If you die at the same time, because that person will be deemed to die second. This is actually something that I always enjoyed telling my husband, because I am the youngest. And so I used to say, <laughs> as we would board planes, you know, of course, you know, if the plane goes down, uh, my family gets it all. But it's like incredibly slow if you don't have a... That's what I was understood. I understood it goes to whatever, I don't know, state trustees, you'll no doubt know. But it takes like two years to get it all sorted out if you don't have a will, yeah? Or is that incorrect? It, it can do. I mean, it depends on the age of the person and how easy it is to find their beneficiaries. Um, if you make a will, then you're setting out, you know, this is my husband, these are my children, these are my siblings. If you die without a will and you ascertain it's the brothers and sisters that are going to inherit, then you might need to track the lawyer, might need to track down a personal um, private investigator to find those siblings. They could be overseas. Um, you need to ascertain exactly who that next of kin is. You know, I, I, one of the things I think puts people off, and I'm interested on, in your thoughts on this, is it is pretty difficult to make a will. Like, I, I did it not that long ago, and I was surprised how many decisions I had to make, things that I hadn't even thought of, and it probably ended up taking me to, you know, I did it properly, I suppose, and it took me two or three meetings with my lawyer and probably took me about six weeks. Is that normal, or can you do it What's quicker? Oh, look, if someone's jumping on a plane to Paris on, on Friday, we'll, we'll get it sorted and we'll get something signed before they get on that plane. Uh, I tell clients, it's as quickly as you can get me the instructions, I can draft that will for you. And some people rightfully, you know, will take a few months to think about things um, to make sure that they make the right decisions. Katie's um, looking guilty. And you're a lawyer. How long did it take you? Oh, don't tell me you haven't got a will. I have a will. Oh, good. It might have taken me up until last year to actually get my first will, and it's precisely because of the decision-making. I mean, I think that lawyers are actually the worst when it comes to not making wills, and it's because we're perfectionists. We want to have the perfect scenario. And one of the problems that my husband and I had when we actually did our will was, you know, we went through all of the questions, we confronted our own mortality, we thought about where we wanted to be buried, we thought about our perfect, you know, funeral, did all of that sort of stuff, um, you know, had the meeting, got the paperwork, you know, really we were in a position where we could have signed. But then in going through that process, we actually started questioning, well, actually, do we just want to give everything to our family or do we want to do something mm. more? And so we actually got to the 11th hour and my husband started talking about, you know, let's completely start again. And I said, absolutely not. I'm a lawyer. I need a will. This is embarrassing. It is embarrassing. I was actually, there's a text that says, I was told that the post office will kit isn't good enough. That I actually have that, but mine's way out of date. But even if it wasn't way out of date, would it have would it be okay to use? There, there are a few problems with the post office wills, or there can be. Um, the first is that it's not appropriate for everyone, and you don't know that when you just buy it from the post office. So if you're in a blended family, um, if you've got some sort of family company or trust that you need to pass control of it to, if you uh, you know have particular assets that can't be dealt with in the fill-in-the-gap formula they've got on the post office will, then it's, it's not going to achieve what you think it's going to achieve. There's also not someone asking you questions to make sure that you actually understand what it is that you own. 
Um, and the second main issue with the post office wills is that people don't follow the signing instructions. Uh, probably 50% of the post office wills I see, there's only one witness or they've forgotten to date it or they, they've missed a page with signing it or they haven't even signed it. Uh, and, you know, that's not a valid will under the Wills Act. Sorry, I'm smiling. I'm not doing a very good job of being an interviewer tonight. I'm just reacting with my facial expressions, which is not ideal. Steve, I interrupted you earlier. What were you going to say? You don't oh, no, I was just thinking. No, I, I sort of do. It was, you know, the, it was interesting the way um, I think you said it, Katie, you know, you're facing your own mortality. That was the thing that really got me, you know. Deci- I had to decide on things like... Um, uh, you know, what happened to my son? I had to decide on things like how old could he be when he got control of the money? I had to decide on who did I trust to be the people looking after it? And I ended up, you know, having someone who I thought was quite financial to manage the, well, a little group of people, another one who I really, who well, was my son's godparents to do, you know, so some of it was probably straightforward, but it took a lot of thinking and discussing. And, and an area you didn't particularly want to go down? Um, yeah, you know, I pro- you know, I don't know. It, um <laughs> It really is that facing your mortality thing, and I think that's you know, and I think that's why you you know we're all sitting there, so you can see everyone think, "Oh, I should have done that better." You know, you can oh, no, see I should have done faces. it at all. That's yeah. I, no, I'm I'm going home. I'm getting on a plane to Paris later in the year, and you've just actually and, made me feel really guilty. So, I mean, this whole you know issue of people not doing it because they have to face their own mortality. I had this great idea when I was in my twenties that you know I'd get all my friends together and we would have a will party where you know everybody would you know go and do their wills and not a drop of alcohol would be drunk. But once we were all signed up, we could sort of have this big party where we actually sort of say we've confronted our mortality and isn't it freeing? Um, <laughs> and did course, that happen? It, no. it never happened because I couldn't get across, you know, how do you sort of do client confidentiality and make sure that the will's valid if there's alcohol on the premises and I just sort of, it got too complicated. So, so that wouldn't have been valid if there was alcohol on the premises? No, oh, that's right. fine. Will's Act says nothing about wine. Yeah. Okay. As long as yeah. it's not <laughs> spilt all over the writing. Yeah. But couldn't you have different, you know, because I'm thinking about that point you made about us, you know, a lot of us being perfectionists and trying to get everything sorted out. That's what slowed me up. But in the end, I decided, damn it, I'm just going to go for 75% is good enough. I went for near enough is good enough. So couldn't we have different levels like a crap will, a pretty good will, <laughs> a fantastic will, and the perfectionist's will? And so the crap will just basically says, hey, look, give all my money to my son, let him sort it out. Then, you know, and have different levels because when you're young, you don't really give that much of a damn. And so you could go the crap will. Excuse my language. No, no, Lindy, it's, true. it's I like the bad. idea of a crap will. But, you know, wh- why can't we do that? Or can we? Oh, look, some, something is better than nothing. Um, I challenge the fact that, that the young don't. When I was a 21-year-old law student, I had a very elaborate will that dealt with where my cat would live and who got my cherry Doc Martens and my Alanis Morissette CDs. So <laughs> no one wanted them. No, <laughs> my, my limited assets. Uh, I think it's it's not just about the, the stuff question as well. It's about thinking about your whole affairs and who's going to pack up the house and who's going to make the decisions about money and make the decisions about who the kids are going to live with, Um, you know, contact all of the authorities. Or even if you don't die and you just lose capacity, who can make those decisions for you during that time? Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I want to take a couple of quick calls. Hi, Camille. Hi, Lindy. How are you? I'm very well. Have you got a question or a comment to make on wills? I've got a question, if I may. Please. Um, It's in regard to my mum's will. She's 104. That's great. Wow, congrats. I know, and... Still, still pretty with it, but um, her will dates back to 1981. Yes. And, and our problem, like my, my nephew and I are her ex- uh, uh, her um, power of attorney. Um, the lady that she made executor was the solicitor that did the will. 
she would probably be in her 90s. We found out. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and we have no clue where she is. She's not practicing anymore. And we're just wondering now, um, you know, like we've only just discussed it in the last couple of days. So, like, it's really weird that this comes up. But I'm wondering, do we, what, how, how do we do that? Or do we go now to a new... Uh, lawyer or to make uh, to find a new executor of the yes. will yeah yes. let's ask a couple of lawyers i happen to have prepared <laughs> earlier uh, <laughs> ladies any answer to that question You'd probably want to take it to a solicitor just to read through the actual terms of the will and, you know, firstly check that the solicitor who's appointed, it's her in her personal capacity and not the firm. Um, often it will be, you know, a, a partner of that particular firm or the firm that acquires that firm. So that's one thing to check. Um, second, is there an alternate executor that's appointed there? No, just, just that lady. In um, her personal capacity. Yes, I'm pretty sure. The way it reads, um, it's, yeah you know, that um, that lady, her name, um, is executor of mum's will. Uh, then it would become a question as to whether mum has testamentary capacity right now to make a new will um, and whether she'd be changing the substantive terms of that will other than yeah. who she's appointing executor. Exactly, because, um, you know, like we, we did it a couple of years ago. We, with um, my nephew, as I said, and I became power of attorney um, for decisions on her behalf. Um and yeah, and then we we just my sister, my other sister found found her will, and she said, "I don't think that lady that lady's going to be pretty old by now." <laughs> I just think it's so funny that it's it's taken such a long period of time to right. to get to that point. It sounds like you need to talk to somebody, Camille. I think rather than just us on on a radio show on a Tuesday night, you need to go and have another meeting. With your with your with your uh, with your lawyer. Steve. Hey, I, I want to ask a question that crosses um, the will and your interest in social media and the internet. Because I was listening to an interview recently with Sasha Baron Cohen. Sasha Baron Cohen is that how you pronounce it? The actor who does Ali G and Barat. Mm-hmm. And now he does all these outrageous stunts for his movies all over the world. And he has a lawyer who he has online in India he described, who he said is just unbelievable. And he rings him 24 hours a day and says, okay, I'm in Dallas, Texas. I'm about to do something, um, this stunt. And the lawyer will say, let me just look up the statutes in Dallas, even though he's not registered to practice in the US, gives him advice, says, now, if you do this, if you do that, you're in trouble. Can we do this with wills? Will I be able to, you know, because at the end of the day, all it takes is me to get, you know, what, the relevant witnesses. I can get it from the post office. Can I go online to some place that offers it cheap and get it? and get my will done there, or is it just a dumb idea because they won't know Australian laws? Uh, look, there are some pretty good online will services in Australia. Um, the better ones will triage you at the start, so they'll ask, are you from a blended family? Um, do you want to leave out a particular beneficiary? Uh, do you need some kind of discretionary trust involved? Do you, uh, do you have a company? Do you have a family trust? And they'll weed out those people that shouldn't be having a basic post office or that online will service. Yep. Um, otherwise, if you have a good relationship with your solicitor, I regularly get texts from clients saying, I got one the other week saying, we have a kitten, do we need to update our will? <laughs> and I thought, bless, no, you don't. But th- thanks for checking in. And, and you can always, you know, if you have a trusted advisor, you can always run those ideas. But from the them. internet, you're not getting the international cop, um, competition because the reason I'm interested too is I've just been getting flooded with Facebook posts recently about psychotherapists, psychology services all over the world. So online psychological support from different countries. They're not registered in Australia. They don't care. They're offering cheap psychological support. I'm, and I'm not pro or against. I haven't looked into it yet. Just started looking at it. Have you guys getting the same thing in law? 
we, I mean, the Will's law is quite similar across Australia, but it is very different overseas. So we don't really have that overseas competition. Um, we do have competition with non-legal service providers. Uh, there are a lot of uh, compliance obligations as a solicitor, you know, massive insurance bills, obligations to ID clients, obligations to check testamentary capacity. And if you're not a law firm offering these services, then a lot of these things don't apply to you. So your costs are going to be a lot lower. The quality of the product, therefore, you get what you pay yeah. for. Yeah. It's the yeah. old story. Yeah. Laura Vickers is here with Nest Legal. We're talking wills. I'm going to do some texts. You happy? Ready to go, Laura? Laura's going. Oh, that wasn't part of the deal. Uh, one that says, oh, "Oh, this is for you, Katie." A will party sounds like the best way to write up my will. I'll have to get my group of fellow mid twenties together and get it done. Well done, mid twenties person. Another that says, "What happens if you have no assets and have debts and then don't leave a will? What happens to that?" Uh, first, I question, do you actually have no assets? You probably have some super somewhere that might get paid into your estate um, and you might have some life insurance attached to that super as well. Um, your, your debts don't die with you, so probably... Someone's going to have to pay them. Uh, well, what is in your estate, which will be something, um, we'll, we'll pay those debts first, yeah. And yep. then if you are still debted, indebted... At that point, what happens then with those debts? They'd, they'd probably they would probably disappear. It would depend on the type of debt and and you know what kind of contract you entered that debt, credit card yeah. debt or something. Yeah. And if so, you only say if the credit card debt is twenty thousand, you've only got uh, any assets of fifteen. They just write that five off. Oh, do you have to ch- check the the terms with your bank as to whether yeah. you know, it, it binds you? Who would they go after? So, yeah, so what about know? the guarantor and a loan? What if I buy a you know a house for five hundred thousand dollars and my dad goes guarantor and the market drops and I die? Is he left with the debt? I suppose he is. The bank will get paid back. The bank will make sure they get paid back. He just yeah. they'll make him sell the house. Don't be guarantor for me, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not trustworthy. Another says, "What uh, can you let me know if you need to include who inherits your estate if your children don't?" Does that make sense? Uh, so if you don't have a will, that must mean. <laughs> Can you let me know if you need to include who inherits your estate if your children don't? I have one child and I was asked. Excuse my voice is going. My brother has three children and was not asked about that. Does that make sense to you? Oh, doesn't I'm make not, sense I'm to me. I'm not following. Sorry. I'm not following. I, okay, we can't <laughs> do that. Katie, please take on. Oh, no, no. I was going to say, is that about, you know, if you decide that your children aren't going to inherit, do you have to say who is going to inherit? That's what I interpret that text as. I do. I interpret ah, it as, yeah, yeah. say, I die at the same time as my son, then who, and I've left everything to my son, then who gets it? Oh, okay. So alternative beneficiaries. But I, who knows? Who knows? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe mm. I'm interpreting wrong. Because I had to fill that in. I had to say what happened if my son died and where did it go and, you know... And I divvied mine up. I'm not going to say who with my nephews. I'm not going to say. <laughs> well, and this is the thing about wills. I mean, you were sort of talking before, Laura, about the fact that, you know, there are these sort of instructions about what should happen, you know, with everything to do with your life when you die. Um, and they are actually quite sophisticated instructions. Like it's not just, you know, step one, if I'm dead, then this happens. But there's actually a lot of if-then statements included in them as well about, you know, well, if, you know, I've left everything to my husband and my husband is dead, then do this? I mean, how, how many levels down can you go? Yeah, that's a good question. I it? mean, think about it. People might make one will every 30 years and a lot can change in 30 years. So you probably want to try and draft it as best you can to deal with those eventualities. Well, like Camille would have liked her mother to have done that if the executor, you know, dies mm. before me because I'm going to live until at least 110. She's 104 now. Then uh, the fellow, the follow-up executor would be blah. Although, you know, as, mm. as you say, Katie, how, how far do you go down that rabbit hole? We went two or three levels. Did you? Mm. 
That's Perfectionist lawyers. Totally. Where, do you, where do you keep your will? Because funnily enough, you know, my company sold to another company to another company and they just sent me something recently and mine's currently sitting on my dining room table. I haven't because they sent it back to me and I, I had to send a form in with a, you know, I had to sign something, but they sent it back to me now. And so I was denied. I was going to put it in my safe deposit box and tell my family where it is or something like that. Where should you keep it? That would be a good option. Um, somewhere that it's you need to produce the original will to get a grant of probate, and your family need to be able to locate that. So you need to put it in the safe and then tell them about it. Um, if you don't have a safe uh, and you uh, you don't trust yourself to to keep it somewhere secure, uh, you can store it with your solicitor. I think state trustees have recently uh, they used to have a will storage service which they charged for, and they've recently made it free. Uh, they they have a wills register as well, so you can uh, put the location of your will on that register, so your family can find it. Um, but sometimes I'll just tell clients to get a fireproof documents bag from Bunnings because that's a little bit easier to spot uh, than just a an envelope that contains wills or a fireproof documents bag from anywhere. Uh, and tell family members that's what they're looking for. Uh, the original wills uh, in where we keep the other documents, and you're looking for this, and that's where you'll find it in the powers of attorney. And I think that last point about actually telling your family where your will is, is the most important part. In some ways, it doesn't matter where you store it as long as somebody other than you knows about yes, it. Yes. And and I think that this is where, you know, we sort of come back to this sort of discomfort that everyone has about talking about things to do with death, that we make wills, but then we don't want to tell anyone that we've made a will because, you know, we're kind of predicting our own deaths. Um, and I must say, we had this problem when my grandmother died that, you know, she died. It was relatively unexpected. And, you know, in the middle of trying to organise the funeral, everyone's running around going, where's the will? It's not in, you know, wherever everyone had thought it was. Um, and it just so happened that, you know, I think the year before I'd been studying wills at university. And so being a very innocent sort of person, you know, we'd heard, you know, ask your family where the wills are. And so I'd been around having tea one night going, so Ma, where do you keep the will? And she just sort of told me. And it was because of that that we saved what could have been weeks of angst and drama. Um, you know, it ended up being a relatively simple sort of thing. But I mean, wills, organ donation, anything to do with death, it's not enough to do the thinking. You've actually got to tell your family about it. Yes. I think we, how often do we come back to that conversation in, in, this, um, in this show? I, I've got two texts. I'm going to try and get to both of them. One that says, uh, sorry, this was a, such a good... What happens if your parents have a will, one parent dies, can the living parent change the will? Their, their own will? Yeah, well, it must be. Well, like, they, they obviously make a new will. Yeah, yeah. The, because the they had a joint life. will, one partner dies, and then there's, they make a new will in their own name. It, it, it would depend whether it was a mutual will or whether they just had mirror wills, but generally speaking, they could remake a will. They could, with yeah. the assets that perhaps they have. Yeah, yeah, or their new partner. If so it, oh, so right. what's the difference between a mutual will and mirror wills? Uh, a mutual will you don't really see too often anymore. Most people do do mirror wills, which is, you know, basically what it says on the label. I it's, die, it yeah. goes to you, you die, it goes to them, etc. Yeah, and you make those decisions jointly. So if you have a young family, you'd want to have, you know, the same person named as guardian and the same person named as trustee to look after uh, the, the, the children's inheritance. You know, you'd, you'd want to make sure that the key sentimental items were left to the same people. 
um, if there was any ambiguity as to who it was that owned that, that particular vase. Yes, I think that's fascinating. That's, that's opening a whole thing. We're running out of time. In fact, we've run out of time to do this today. Sorry to all of the questions and callers we didn't get to and to the text that came through. This won't be the last time that we do wills. Every time it just opens up so many cans of worms. And yet it never has yet pushed me into getting a will done. Let's hope that this is the <laughs> final time. Can you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Steve. That's yeah. exactly what I want. A psychiatrist <laughs> putting my will together. Katie, you'll get a call very soon. Uh, thank you very much, Laura. It's lovely to have you in here. Laura Vickers is with Nest Legal. They're an online law firm trying to fight against our natural tendencies of putting off making that most important of documents. Steve Allen is a psychiatrist. Katie Miller is a Melbourne lawyer. And this has been Ritz and Cures.